Jesus is offensive. Um, now, there's always been something to Jesus that has drawn even the worst of sinners to him. But Jesus' preaching also offended people and made them furious. After all, Philip Yancey wrote, um, How would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What kind of government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? But Jesus is still offensive today, and that offensiveness is not just to one group of people, but really to everyone. If Jesus came today preaching the exact same message, um, all people all over the spectrum would be offended by him. Jesus' preaching of the Beatitudes and his words about the rich and the poor would have some people calling him a woke liberal. Jesus' words about sexuality and the exclusivity of salvation through him and the Christ's cross alone would have people calling him a bigot and hateful. But our passage this morning in Luke chapter 7, 18 through 35, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we're going to study this passage this morning to see how can we get this blessing and how can we avoid being offended by Jesus. In order to do that, we're going to need to decide the identities of three people. And so if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18 through 35, and we'll read it all. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor of the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the, tax collect all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees of the and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say to look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, help us to see your words. Lord, we read so much of your scripture as we gather together because we want to hear from you. Lord, would your word pierce our hearts? 
Would it convict us of our sin? Would it reveal the stuff to us that we are blind to? And Lord, would it encourage us where we are weak? Would you strengthen us where we feel faint? Lord, would you help us to be more and more like Jesus? We pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. can be seated if you are taking notes in your bulletin. Your first point is that we must decide who Jesus is. That we must decide who Jesus is. The whole passage here kind of circles around this question of who is Jesus. This is even John the Baptist's question. It's a question that every single one of us and every single person must answer. All of us have to decide who do we believe that Jesus is. We're returning this morning to John the Baptist. You might remember him from our study of the Gospel of Luke. He was in the first couple chapters. He appears once more here in this passage, and then we will not see him for the rest of our time in the Gospel of Luke. John has heard about all that Jesus is doing in 18. The disciples of John, they report these things to him. And John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John's disciples come and they tell him, Hey, we've heard about Jesus. Here is all the things that he has been doing, the things that we've been reading about, the miracles that we've been studying. So John sends two of them back, and he wants them to ask Jesus one question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is asking about the identity of Jesus. It's the most important question that we can ask, and deciding who Jesus is will change everything about your life. And when John says, are you the one who is to come, he means the Messiah. He's asking Jesus, are you the, really the promised king? Jesus, are you really the son of David? Is Jesus really the one who all the promises in Scripture are about? The disciples are very obedient in 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? They make it clear this question comes from John. That's why it's repeated exactly twice. And this question, it comes from the last Old Testament prophet, the first prophet in hundreds of years, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He wants to know if Jesus is really the Messiah or if they need to keep looking and keep waiting. Now, we're not really sure why exactly John asks this question. Um, there's plenty of ink that's been spilled in books and commentaries trying to debate it. And the quick answer is we just don't know. Um, scripture doesn't tell us what was going on in his heart or his motivation behind it. Some believe that John asks because he's doubting or he's unsure. Luke 3.20 tells us that John is probably in prison at this point. Right? He's been locked up by Herod for daring to preach against Herod's sin. And suffering can often cause us to doubt. It makes us wonder, is God's promise is really true. Those things that I believed when things are going well, is that still true today? And even the greatest of prophets have doubted, right? Elijah was so overtaken with despair, he asked God to kill him. It wouldn't be unusual or out of the ordinary for John to doubt. But the passage here that we're looking at now, it doesn't tell us that John was in prison. We heard that way back in chapter 3. I think if Luke wanted us to feel John's anguish, he might have said it now or repeated it. Others think maybe John did this to help his disciples. He's trying to help them see that they should follow Jesus instead of him. He's kind of, you know, being a good teacher. But at the end of the day, we really don't know. Um, scripture doesn't give us any indication as to what's going on in John's heart. We only get his words. Now, in just my opinion, I don't think that John is doubting here. Remember, this is still very early in Jesus' ministry. He's still serving in the region of Galilee. He has not been all over Israel yet. 
He has only just begun to work miracles. He still has a few years of ministry ahead of him. This could be John asking right after he hears first about what Jesus is doing. I think that John just wants his suspicions confirmed. I think he wants to be sure that Jesus really is the Messiah. And if you notice how Jesus responds to John, he doesn't rebuke him for doubting. He doesn't tell him to stop questioning him. But Jesus also doesn't give a straight answer. Jesus actually doesn't say anything at first, if you notice. Instead, he invites them to come and follow him around for a day. So they ask their question. Jesus kind of turns, ignores them in 21. And that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He does what he's always done. He heals people of their diseases, not just a couple of diseases, but all of them. He even cures people of plague. Just experienced the plague of COVID. It disrupted our world for three years and still is disruptions that we're feeling. Jesus just heals those, lots of them. Jesus also casts out evil spirits. Those who are possessed by demons, Jesus kicks them out. Demonic possession, it's something that fills horror movies today. It's a horrifying prospect. We don't know what to do with it. It terrifies us. Jesus knows what to do. He just gets rid of them easily. It's a normal day at the office for Jesus. When Jesus gives sight to the blind, those who have been unable to see, Jesus heals. He gives them back their eyes. Jesus does all of these things. And then after working all of those miracles, he turns and now he's ready to answer their question. 22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Okay, can you imagine being there then? Okay, John's disciples, they've watched miracle after miracle. Miracles that their prophet, the person that they are disciples of, doesn't do. The blind can see, the lame and the crippled are able to walk, lepers have been made clean, their shame is removed, the deaf can hear, the dead themselves have been raised. All of this Jesus is accomplishing in their sight. And it's almost like after doing all of that, Jesus turns and says, yeah, so what was your question again? What did you want? I forgot. Why are you here? You see the implication of what Jesus says in doing that. Him asking that, the question is whether or not they're going to accept the evidence right in front of their eyes. They should be able to make up their own minds now after spending some time with Jesus and seeing what he has done. And it's amazing. Jesus doesn't give them a simple answer. He doesn't tell them, well, duh. He doesn't say, yes, guys, obviously, are you not paying attention? He doesn't rebuke them for their question. He simply continues his kingdom work and turns to them and says, well, make a decision. Who do you think that I am? These miracles are not just something that Jesus does to prove his identity. They're not just something Jesus does to draw a crowd. They're also not just something Jesus does because he loves these people and he wants to heal them and care for them. Jesus also does these things in order to fulfill the scriptures and prophecies about what the one who is to come would be like. The promised Messiah would do these things. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So again, Jesus has done these things. This is why Jesus answers them. He mentions the blind, the deaf, and the lame. And he's quoting scripture, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is part of why Jesus said that I've been preaching the good news to the poor. You may recognize chapter, that chapter of Isaiah from Luke 4 because Jesus read it and then said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing when he began his ministry. Jesus points the disciples back to those prophecies that they should know well. He says, the scripture says the Messiah will do these things, and here I am, Jesus, doing these things. Is Jesus the Messiah? That's what John's disciples and John has to decide. What do they believe about Jesus? And Jesus finishes his answer. He says something strange in 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or your translation may say, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, offended, that can be a bit of a buzzword these days, too, so it might help to understand what does Jesus mean. He means, really, blessed is the one who accepts me as the Messiah. Blessed is the one who accepts me as the Savior. Blessed is the person who doesn't reject Jesus because Jesus doesn't look like what he thought the Messiah should look like. Blessed is the one who accepts Jesus even though they don't exactly like everything about Jesus and what he does because they recognize who he really is. The Jews thought that the Messiah would do more fighting with the Romans. The Jews thought that he would lead a rebellion and he would restore their earthly kingdom. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. He didn't look like and didn't act like what they thought a religious holy person should look like and should do. He didn't do what they wanted. There are still many today who stumble over Jesus. They reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their idea of what God should be like. They don't know what to do with them. Several famous examples, you have people like the Jesus Seminar of the 80s, a group of scholars and religious um, leaders, they went through the Gospels to decide, okay, we're going to find out what in here Jesus actually really did and what he really did say. As you imagine, there was a lot of stuff they didn't like, and they decided, well, Jesus couldn't have said that because we don't like that. We have people like Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson went through the Gospels and he removed everything he thought Jesus never could have said or could have done with a knife. His Gospels was a lot smaller than ours. They were offended by Jesus. They could not accept him as he is. And today people are still offended by Jesus. We will only accept a Jesus who speaks in a political language that we want. People will only follow a Jesus who doesn't demand too much of me. Maybe he saves me, but then he just leaves me alone. We will just want a Jesus who just loves and accepts me and never tells me what to do. And I just want a Jesus who speaks harshly against my enemies, but really not against my sins would be nice. But at the end of the day, Jesus is here. And Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God. Jesus has raised the dead, and he himself was raised from the dead after the cross. And the question all of us have to decide is, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really our only way to salvation and new life? I believe that he is. But it's up to all of us individually in our own hearts to decide. Just like John the Baptist had to and just like his disciples had to. Will we be offended by Jesus or will we accept him as our Savior and as our God? So we've seen we have to decide who Jesus is, but we also have to decide something about John the Baptist. Point number two is we must decide who John the Baptist is. Decide who the John the Baptist is. Jesus turns after being questioned about his own identity to John. But I think what he wants us to see is that we need to recognize and decide who we, what we believe about John the Baptist as well. 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking by the wind? 
So he's clearly, he's discussing John now, and he's trying to get after who John is. Because John ministered not in synagogues and in towns like Jesus. John ministered mostly in the wilderness and outside. Jesus asked the crowd, well, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? When he says, a reed shaking in the wind. Okay, part of that he's saying, you didn't go out there for the scenery, right? You go in the wilderness just because it was really pretty and you wanted to get in touch with some nature. Didn't just go for a hike. Now, the crowds would go out and they'd go there to see John the Baptist, to see what this man would say, to listen to his preaching, to be baptized in his wild waters. But I think this phrase of a reed shaken by the wind, it's also referring to John's character because John was not somebody who could be easily shaken or moved. You couldn't push John around. John would stand strong. John was willing to rebuke and preach against sins even if it was those in power who would not be happy with it. He was willing to rebuke even Herod for burying his brother's wife. John offended those in power and it cost him his freedom. And John was willing to stay in prison rather than recant or take back what he said. Because he could not be shaken. This was the man that people went in the wilderness to see. And Jesus continues in verse 25, What then did you have to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. Jesus goes on to describe John because John was not what somebody would have expected the herald of the Messiah to look like. John wasn't somebody who wore even just regular clothes. John wasn't somebody who dressed really nice or had the fanciest suit. John was not somebody who wore the clothes of a palace ruler because he was a herald of the king. Um, John wore camel hair. He lived outside. He didn't live in the luxury of palaces. John didn't use his successful ministry to build himself a mansion. John lived out in the wilderness. Ironically, now John actually does reside in a palace. But he doesn't reside in the courts as a favorite advisor of the rulers. He does not sit on a throne. John sits in the dungeons. John is sitting on death row, and he's going to be beheaded before too long. 26, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So why would they go to the wilderness to see John? Because he was a prophet. Because they believed that John was the first prophet in a very long time. They'd heard stories about prophets, but now there's one in their own midst, and they could go and hear him for themselves. And this prophet, John, has something to say. Because John is a prophet, he is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. You still today have people willing to travel to far off places to go see someone that they believe is a prophet. Or somebody that they believe is in touch, you know, with the universe or something. And they want to go here. But Jesus says that John is more than a prophet. John was not just an ordinary holy man. He's not some regular monk. John the Baptist was somebody more. Why would... Jesus say this in 27, he says, It is of he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You might remember it from when we studied that book. He's describing the voice that is calling out in the wilderness for the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah. Another passage in Isaiah 43 through 5, it describes the voice who's calling out in the wilderness to make the way straight. The one who's preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 3, 4 through 6, it says the same thing. And we see that John is fulfilling scriptures himself as well. And John's identity is tied to who the Messiah is. 
Then Jesus says something remarkable about John's identity. Jesus says, John is not only the forerunner, John is something more. In 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he. That's a very strange statement. It almost seems like a contradiction, or at least it doesn't make sense on its face until you sit down to think about it and unpack it. So John's the greatest man who's ever been born, but he's also the least in the kingdom. What do we do with that? Well, the first part is we need to acknowledge the tremendous blessing that John gets. Okay, John has been chosen by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. John has been chosen to be the first prophet in hundreds of years. John gets to be the one who finally says, Jesus the Messiah is coming. He's going to be here soon. You will live to see him. This is not a promise for your grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren. This is for you now. Get ready. It's one of the greatest blessings somebody could have hoped for, and John gets to experience it. And Jesus says there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, and there's been a lot of prophets. There's been a lot of prophets who have even worked lots of miracles. Elijah and Elisha, they worked incredible miracles. Outside of his miraculous birth, we don't really see John doing any. But Jesus says he's the greatest. And John is the greatest because of who he gets to point to. Other prophets got to prophesy hence. They get to prophesy things that they probably didn't even fully understand. They prophesied breadcrumbs to whet Israel's appetite and prepare them for when Jesus would come. But now John gets to deliver the main course. So here's Jesus. John gets to say, behold, here is the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. This is why I think John is called the greatest man ever born among women. Obviously, this doesn't mean that Jesus is greater or John is greater than Jesus. Um, Jesus is truly man, but he's also truly God. John is just 100% man, and that's it. So of all the men who have been born and are just men, John is the greatest of them. But the greatest thing about him is he gets to point to Jesus. But why the second portion? Why does Jesus say that the least in the kingdom is greater than he? I think, again, this comes down to who John is. John is the herald of a kingdom that is to come. John's the last of the Old Testament prophets. John's a member of the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant is coming. The new kingdom is coming. The kingdom and the king that John is pointing towards is going to be here. And in our day, now, it's, it's here. It's among us. And the smallest member of the kingdom of God is greater than John. Often as Christians, I don't think we recognize the incredible blessing that we have to be born here and now. And I don't mean here in our particular geographical location on the globe. I mean here in our relation to Jesus and His cross and the Scriptures. We get to experience things that John and the other prophets only dreamed of. We get to read about fully in an afternoon if you took some time to do that. And Jesus says that the blessings that John got to experience as being herald of the Messiah is less than everything that we get to experience. That the newest Christian who's been saved for less than five minutes is experiencing more blessings than John got to in his life. You remember as well, John is going to die. John the Baptist will die before Jesus fully inaugurates his kingdom. John is going to die before Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascends. John will die before the Holy Spirit descends like a dove once again and fills every follower of Jesus. John is much like those listed in Hebrews 11 who had faith but did not get to see what was promised. Abraham was promised a great nation, but he only 
had one son. Moses heard the promises of the promised land, but he never got to set foot inside. David was promised his line would reign forever, but when he died, his family was kind of a bit of a mess. And John is going to die before he will get to see all the promises that he's made fulfilled. Hebrews 11 reminds us of the great many in that hall of faith. Though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. You, if you're here and you're a Christian, you have received it. That all of the promises that they longed for, all of those visions and dreams and answers to prayer, they're here. We have the greater blessing than all of them got to experience. Now, if you could, I mean, how many of you would want to switch places with John the Baptist? Okay, I would raise my hand. I'd love to switch places with John the Baptist. Are you kidding me? Um, baptize thousands, lead a revival, get to be a prophet, filled with the Spirit, speak for God, get to be somebody who's fulfilling the promises in Scripture, get to be somebody who gets to be around Jesus. You get the privilege of baptizing Jesus and seeing the heavens open and the dove descend. I'd trade places with John in a heartbeat. Okay, but part of what Jesus seems to be saying here is that John would trade places with any of us. Because the blessings that we get to experience on this side of the cross is greater than all that John got to see and got to do. Because the kingdom that is to come is greater than the one that was. This is what I think this means. Jesus' comment is not really about how awesome John the Baptist is. We get distracted by that part. It's really about how awesome it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of God because of the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... Ultimately, we have to decide who John is. Because John is a herald of the Messiah. And do you really believe that John pointed to Jesus? And we also have to decide if Jesus was right about John. If being a citizen of the kingdom of God is greater than being anybody in the Old Testament. So we have to decide who John is. And finally, we turn to our own identities. And point number three, if you're taking notes, is we have to decide who we will be. We must decide who we will be. What I mean by this is we have to decide, are we going to believe in Jesus? Will we really be Christians? Will we be followers of Christ? Will we be believers in Jesus or will we not? Will we just be offended by Jesus and will that keep us from experiencing salvation and following him? 29, when the people heard all of this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. There are two reactions from the people. Some of the people accept Jesus. They declare God just. This means they see how God has fulfilled Scripture and they say, Amen. They believe it. And they believe it because of John's ministry. They were baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's why it says, Having been baptized with the baptism of John. John prepared them for the coming of Jesus. And now that he's here and he's, they've been prepared, they receive him gladly. But others reject the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Some weren't prepared. They weren't baptized. They didn't repent, and now they didn't believe. The Pharisees often, okay, they rejected the baptism of John. They thought it was good that those other sinners got baptized and repented of their sins because they're really messed up, but we're good. We don't need to do that. And then when the moment for belief came, they failed because they thought they were good enough. They didn't need a Savior. And you notice who does believe, right? The, hate, the hated and sinful tax collectors who are there, they believe. They declare God just. They accept Jesus. But those religious elite do not. 
31, what shall I then compare the people of generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a funeral song and you didn't weep. So Jesus insults the generation. He says they're like children. They're like children who are playing and can't decide what they want. Don't know if you've been around little children lately, um, but they are people who can't decide what they want. <laughs> been experiencing this a lot lately, um, especially when they're two. Okay, especially when they're my children. There are sometimes they have moments. Pick a random example. You know, Daddy, I want to wear pants. And they're crying because they want to wear pants. Okay, son. Here, we'll put on these pants. No, not these pants. And we melt down again. Try to say, well, son, these are the pants that you picked and you said you wanted to wear. No, not those pants. So we take off the pants. Then more tears. No, I, I want those pants. The pants we just took off, oh, those pants. Okay, let's put those pants back on. Jesus says, that's what you guys are like. He says, that's what this generation is. You just complain about everything that Jesus does and everything he's done. I want you to do this, Jesus. And then Jesus does it. And then you cry. And so Jesus doesn't do it. And then you cry again. And Jesus goes, what do you want from me? So Jesus is saying that, that no matter what Jesus does, you will find a way to be offended by it. You will find a way to reject him. You will find some excuse for why you cannot believe in him and why you will not accept him as your savior. 33, for John the Baptist, he's come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. Okay, the people are longing, praying for a prophet. John comes, they get their prophet, and they don't like him. Okay, he's a monk. He doesn't drink wine. He's kind of an ascetic. He spends time fasting out in the wilderness. He eats a little, and he's out there, and the people reject him. Say, that's weird. He must be possessed by demons. We don't like that. So they get the opposite of John when Jesus comes, but they still complain. No, I don't want pants. No, yes, those pants. 34, the son of man, he's come eating and drinking. So he's eating and you say, look at this guy. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus doesn't fast. He eats and drinks and they complain about that. They're just toddlers who don't know what they want. 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What does this mean? It means that those who are wise will act like it. Those who have the right spiritual perspective will receive Jesus. Those who are willing to put their faith in Jesus will, will do so. The reality is that there are always people who reject Jesus. They will not accept God. It doesn't matter what God does. It doesn't matter who preaches to them. It doesn't matter what passage of God's word that they hear read. It doesn't matter if God worked miracles in their faces. It doesn't matter if God brought people back from the dead because he did. It doesn't matter if he himself came back from the dead because he did and people rejected him. They made up excuses. They hated it. But the free offer of the gospel is still here. That every single sinner can be justified by the blood of Jesus. We don't need a God who looks just like us. We don't need a God who can make us happy and who can check all of our boxes and never offend us or need us, make us angry. We need a God who can make us righteous and who can make us clean and give us new and eternal life. And only Jesus can do that. Not the Jesus of your imagination, not the Jesus that you wish, but the Jesus who was and who is yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same. And he's here. And he brought salvation for all of us. So don't be offended by Jesus. Receive him as your Savior and follow him. So in summary, what do we got to do? We got to decide who Jesus is. Got to decide who John the Baptist is, and we have to decide who we'll, we will be. So who will you be? 
Will you be offended by Jesus or will you receive him as he actually is in all of his glory and be a follower of Jesus? Because that invitation is available to all of us and to all of our neighbors, to everyone who still has breath in their lungs, if we will only heed it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we didn't get a God like we imagined. Lord, that you were not created by our subconsciousness, that we did not invent you, that you spoke this world into existence with a word. And Lord, that you came, you were willing to condescend and come down to us and put on human form and walk around and save us. And you put up with our questions and you put up with our complaining and with our whining and our tears. And you don't just wipe us all out and kill our souls immediately. Lord, you show us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace every day. Lord, thank you that you are who you are. That you are the incomprehensible God. The God that we can spend our entire lives meditating on and reading about and yet not even begin to scratch the surface of. Lord, you are a God who is worthy of our worship. You are a God who is worthy of our praise. And you are a God who is worthy of our lives. Lord, help us to be followers of you. Help us to believe that you are God every single day. And help us not to be offended by you, to not change you, to not try to sand you down or smooth out your rough edges, but to receive you as you are and to let you change us instead of us trying to change you. We pray these holy, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. Once you stand as we worship our incredible Savior, once more through song. Amen. What a matchless king we serve. Hear this benediction from the end of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.